Send Me to Sleep is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free and have access to special bonus episodes, you can try out Premium Free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, Chapter 2. In the last chapter, the family had all arrived and the scene was set for Edith's wedding. In this chapter, Margaret returns home to Halston Parsonage. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 2 Roses and Thorns By the soft green light in the woody glade On the banks of moss where thy childhood played By the household tree through which thine eye First looked in love to the summer sky Mrs. Hemans Margaret was once more in her morning dress, travelling quietly home with her father, who had come up to assist at the wedding. 
Her mother had been detained at home by a multitude of half-reasons, none of which anybody fully understood, except Mr. Hale, who was perfectly aware that all his arguments in favour of a grey satin gown, which was midway between oldness and newness, had proved unavailing, and that, as he had not the money to equip his wife afresh, from top to toe, she would not show herself at her only sister's only child's wedding. If Mrs. Shaw had guessed at the real reason why Mrs. Hale did not accompany her husband, she would have showered down gowns upon her. But it was nearly twenty years since Mrs. Shaw had been the poor, pretty Mrs. Beresford, and she had really forgotten all grievances except that of unhappiness arising from disparity of age in married life, on which she could decant by the half hour. Dearest Maria had married the man of her heart, only eight years older than herself, with the sweetest temper and that blue-black hair one so seldom sees. Mr. Hale was one of the most delightful preachers she had ever heard, and a perfect model of a parish priest. Perhaps it was not quite a logical deduction from all these premises, but it was still Mrs. Shaw's characteristic conclusion as she thought over her sister's lot. Married for love, what could dearest Maria have to wish for in this world? Mrs. Hale, if she spoke truth, might have answered with a real made list. A silver grey glacé silk, a white chip bonnet, oh, dozens of things for the wedding, and hundreds of things for the house. Margaret only knew that her mother had not found it convenient to come, and she was not sorry to think that their meeting and greeting would take place at Helston Parsonage rather than, during the confusion of the last two or three days, in the house in Harley Street, where she herself had to play the part of Figaro and was wanted everywhere at one and the same time. Her mind and body ached now with the recollection of all she had done and said within the last forty-eight hours. The farewells so hurriedly taken, amongst all the other goodbyes, of those she had lived with so long, oppressed her now with a sad regret for the times that were no more. It did not signify what those times had been. They were gone, never to return. Margaret's heart felt more heavy than she could ever have thought it possibly in going to her own dear home. The place and the life 
she had longed for for years. At that time, of all times, for yearning and longing, just before the sharp senses lose their outlines in sleep. She took her mind away with a wrench from the recollection of the past to the bright, serene contemplation of the hopeful future. Her eyes began to see, not visions of what had been, but the sight actually before her, her dear father leaning back asleep in the railway carriage. His blue-black hair was grey now, and lay thinly over his brows. The bones of his face were plainly to be seen, too plainly for beauty. If his features had been less finely cut as it was, they had a grace if not a comeliness of their own. The face was in repose, but it was rather rest after weariness than the serene calm of the countenance of one who led a placid, contented life. Margaret was painfully struck by the worn, anxious expression, and she went back over to the open and avowed circumstances of her father's life to find the cause for the lines that spoke so plainly of habitual distress and depression. Poor Frederick, thought she, sighing. Oh, if Frederick had been but a clergyman, instead of going into the navy and been lost to us all. I wish I knew all about it. I never understood it from Aunt Shaw. I only knew he could not come back to England because of that terrible affair. Poor dear Papa. How sad he looks. I am so glad I'm going home to be at hand to comfort him and Mama. She was ready with a bright smile in which there was not a trace of fatigue to greet her father when he awakened. He smiled back again, but faintly, as if it were an unusual exertion. His face returned to its lines of habitual anxiety. He had a trick of half opening his mouth as if to speak, which constantly unsettled the form of the lips and gave the face an undecided expression. But he had the same large, soft eyes as his daughter, eyes which moved slowly and almost grandly round in their orbits, and were well veiled by their transparent white eyelids. Margaret was more like him than like her mother. 
Sometimes people wondered that parents so handsome should have a daughter who was so far regularly beautiful. Not beautiful at all, was occasionally said. Her mouth was wide, no rosebud that could only open just enough to let out a yes and no, and and please you sir. But the wide mouth was one soft curve of rich red lips, and the skin, if not white and fair, was of an ivory smoothness and delicacy. If the look on her face was, in general, too dignified and reserved for one so young, now, talking to her father, it was bright as the morning, full of dimples and glances that spoke of childish gladness and boundless hope in the future. It was the latter part of July when Margaret returned home. The forest trees were all one dark, full, dusky green. The ferns below them caught all the slanting sunbeams. The weather was sultry and broodingly still. Margaret used to tramp along by her father's side, crushing down the ferns with a cruel glee as she felt it yield under her light foot and send up the fragrance peculiar to it out on the broad commons into the warm scented light, seeing multitudes of wild, free, living creatures reveling in the sunshine and the herbs and the flowers it called forth. This life, at least these walks, realized all Margaret's anticipations. She took a pride in her forest. Its people were her people. She made hearty friends with them learned and delighted in using their peculiar words, took up her freedom amongst them, nursed their babies, talked or read with slow distinctness to their old people, carried dainty messes to their sick, resolved before long to teach at the school where her father went regularly, every day, as to an appointed task. But she was continually tempted off to go and see some individual friend, man, woman, or child, in some cottage in the green shade of the forest. Her out-of-doors life was perfect. Her indoors life had its drawbacks. With the healthy shame of a child, she blamed herself for her keenness of sight in perceiving that all was not as it should be there. 
Her mother. Her mother, always so kind and tender towards her, seemed now and then so much discontented with their situation, thought that the bishop strangely neglected his episcopal duties in not giving Mr. Hale a better living, and almost reproached her husband because he could not bring himself to say that he wished to leave the parish and undertake the charge of a larger. He would sigh aloud as he answered that if he could do what he ought in Little Helston, he should be thankful. But every day he was more overpowered. The world became more bewildering. At each repeated urgency of his wife, that he would put himself in the way of seeking some preferment, Margaret saw that her father shrank more and more, and she strove at such times to reconcile her mother to Helston. Mrs. Hale said that the near neighborhood of so many trees affected her health, and Margaret would try to tempt her forth on the beautiful, broad, upland, sun-streaked, cloud-shadowed common, for she was sure that her mother had accustomed herself too much to an indoor life, seldom extending her walks beyond the church, the school, and the neighboring cottages. This did good for a time, but when the autumn drew on, the weather became more changeable. Her mother's idea of the unhealthiness of the place increased, and she repined even more frequently that her husband, who was more learned than Mr. Hume, a better parish priest than Mr. Holdsworth, should not have met with the preferment that these two former neighbours of theirs had done. This marring of the peace of home by long hours of discontent was what Margaret was unprepared for. She knew, and had rather revelled in the idea, that she should have to give up many luxuries which had only been troubles and trammels to her freedom in Harley Street. Her keen enjoyment of every sensuous pleasure was balanced finely, if not overbalanced, by her conscious pride in being able to do without them all, if need were. But the cloud never comes in that quarter of the horizon from which we watch it. There had been slight complaints and passing regrets on her mother's part over some trifle connected with Helston and her father's position there when Margaret had been just spending her holidays at home before. But in the general happiness of the recollection of those times, she had forgotten the small details 
which were not so pleasant. In the latter half of September, the autumnal rains and storms came on, and Margaret was obliged to remain more in the house than she had done hitherto. Halston was at some distance from any neighbours of their own standard of cultivation. It is undoubtedly one of the most out-of-the-way places in England, said Mrs. Hale in one of her plaintive moods. I can't help regretting constantly that Papa had really no one to associate with here. He is so thrown away, seeing no one but farmers and labourers from week's end to week's end. If we only lived at the other side of the parish, it would be something. There we should be almost within walking distance of Stansfield. Certainly the Gormans would be within a walk. Gormans said Margaret. Are those the Gormans who made their fortunes in trade at Southampton? Oh, I'm glad we don't visit them. I don't like shoppy people. I think we are far better off knowing only cottagers and labourers and people without pretense. You must not be so fastidious, Margaret, dear, said her mother, secretly thinking of a young and handsome Mr. Gorman, whom she had once met at Mr. Hume's. No, I call mine a very comprehensive taste. I like all people whose occupations have to do with land. I like soldiers and sailors and the three learned professions, as they call them. I'm sure you don't want me to admire butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, do you, Mama? But the Gormans were neither butchers nor bakers, but very respectable coach builders. Very well. Coach building is a trade all the same, and I think a much more useless one than that of butchers or bakers. Oh, how tired I used to be of the drives every day in Aunt Shaw's carriage, and how I longed to walk. And walk Margaret did, in spite of the weather. She was so happy out of doors, at her father's side, that she almost danced, and with the soft violence of the west wind behind her, as she crossed some heath, she seemed to be borne onwards, as slightly and easily as the fallen leaf that was wafted along by the autumnal breeze. But the evenings were rather difficult to fill up agreeably. Immediately after tea, her father withdrew into his small library, and she and her mother 
were left alone. Mrs. Hale had never cared much for books and had discouraged her husband very early in their married life in his desire of reading aloud to her while she worked. At one time they had tried backgammon as a resource, but as Mr. Hale grew to take an increasing interest in his school and his parishioners, he found that the interruptions which arose out of these duties were regarded as hardships by his wife, not to be accepted as the natural conditions of his profession, but to be regretted and struggled against by her as they severally arose. So he withdrew, while the children were young, into his library to spend his evenings, if he were at home, in reading the speculative and metaphysical books which were his delight. When Margaret had been here before, she had brought down with her a great box of books, recommended by masters or governors, and had found the summer's day all too short to get through the reading she had to do before her return to town. Now there were only the well-bound, little-read English classics, which were weeded out of her father's library to fill up the small bookshelves in the drawing room. Thomason's Seasons, Haley's Cowper, Middleton's Cicero were by far the lightest, newest, and most amusing. The bookshelves did not afford much resource. Margaret told her mother every particular of her London life, to all of which Mrs. Hale listened with interest, sometimes amused and questioning, at others a little inclined to compare her sister's circumstances of ease and comfort with the narrower means of Helston Vicarage. On such evenings, Margaret was apt to stop talking rather abruptly and listen to the drip, drip of the rain upon the leads of the little bow window. Once or twice, Margaret found herself mechanically counting the repetitions of the monotonous sound, while she wondered if she might venture to put a question on a subject very near to her heart. And she asked where Frederick was now, what he was doing, how long it was since they had heard from him. But a consciousness that her mother's delicate health and positive dislike to Helston all dated from the time of the mutiny in which Frederick had been engaged the full account of which Margaret had never heard, and which now seemed doomed to be buried in sad oblivion, made her pause and turn away from the subject each time she approached it. When she was with her mother, her father seemed the best person to apply for the information 
and when with him, she thought that she could speak more easily to her mother. Probably there was nothing much to be heard that was new. In one of the letters she had received before leaving Harley Street, her father had told her that they had heard from Frederick. He was still at Rio and very well in health and sent his best love to her, which was dry bones, but not the living intelligence she longed for. Frederick was always spoken of in the rare times when his name was mentioned as poor Frederick. His room was kept exactly as he left it and was regularly dusted and put into order by Dixon, Mrs. Hale's maid, who touched no other part of the household work, but always remembered the day when she had been engaged by Lady Beresford as lady's maid to Sir John's wards. The pretty Miss Beresford, the bells of Rutlandshire. Dixon had always considered Mr. Hale as the blight which had fallen upon her young lady's prospects in life. If Miss Beresford had not been in such a hurry to marry a poor country clergyman, there was no knowing what she might have become. But Dixon was too loyal to desert her in her affliction and downfall. Alas, her married life. She remained with her and was devoted to her interests always considering herself as the good and protecting fairy whose duty it was to baffle the malignant giant, Mr. Hale. Master Frederick had been her favourite and pride, and it was with a little softening of her dignified look and manner that she went in weakly to arrange the chamber as carefully as if he might be coming home that very evening. Margaret could not help believing that there had been some late intelligence of Frederick, unknown to her mother, which was making her father anxious and uneasy. Mrs. Hale did not seem to perceive any alteration in her husband's looks or ways. His spirits were tender and gentle, readily affected by any small piece of intelligence concerning the welfare of others. He would be depressed for many days after witnessing a deathbed or hearing of any crime. But now, Margaret noticed an absence of mind, as if his thoughts were preoccupied by some subject, the oppression of which could not be relieved by any daily action, such as comforting the survivors or teaching at the school in hope of lessening the evils 
in the generation to come. Mr. Hale did not go out among his parishioners as much as usual. He was more shut up in his study, was anxious for the village postman, whose summons to the household was a rap on the back kitchen window shutter, a signal which at one time had often to be repeated before anyone was sufficiently alive to the hour of day to understand what it was and attend to him. Now Mr. Hale loitered about the garden, if the morning was fine, and if not, stood dreamily by the study window until the postman had called, or gone down the lane, giving a half-respectful, half-confidential shake of the head to the parson, who watched him away from the sweet briar hedge, and passed the great arbiters before he turned into the room to begin his day's work with all the signs of a heavy heart and an occupied mind. But Margaret was at an age when any apprehension, not absolutely based on a knowledge of facts, is easily banished for a time by a bright sunny day or some happy outward circumstance. And when the brilliant fourteen fine days of October came on, her cares were all blown away as lightly as the thistledown, and she thought of nothing but the glories of the forest. The fern harvest was over, and now that the rain was gone, many a deep glade was accessible, into which Margaret had only peeped in July and August weather. She had learnt drawing with Edith, and she had sufficiently regretted, during the gloom of the bad weather, her idle revelling in the beauty of the woodlands, while it had yet been fine to make her determined to sketch what she could before winter fairly set in. Accordingly, she was busy preparing her board one morning, when Sarah, the housemaid, threw wide open the drawing room door and announced Mr. Henry Lennox. Mr. Henry Lennox.